0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas and the stern Gershon Yaakov Ben Moshe on the occasion of his fourth Yortzite. May his soul be elevated in heaven. As we approach the end of year six of the Parsha podcast, it's been an incredible run. And as we mentioned last week, please God, we're going to come back again for a new season with the help of the Almighty. Year seven, and I told you last week that I may reveal what the the next year's format's going to be, and I decided that you've been like the the best audience in the world. The Parsha podcast, we're like a family, I always like to say. I'm going to tell you. You ready? Drum roll, please. Next year, it's going to look like this. It's IQ, idea, question. We're going to raise your partial IQ and, and your general IQ. IQ, an idea, and a question. The truth is the IQ could be raised in all kinds of ways. It could be, instead of an idea and a question, it could be, let's say, um, an insight and a quotation. Or maybe it could be, uh, maybe an inquiry and, uh, and a quandary. But regardless, every week, please God, in year seven of the Parsha podcast, we're going to raise our Parsha IQ together, a Parsha IQ and, and our general IQ. You know, people think that uh, the way to raise the IQ is you got to listen to some Mozart or, or start school a little early with Head Start, do your Sudoku puzzles and play chess. And that does have some marginal improvements. But there's only one thing that's clinically proven to raise your IQ, and that's Torah. And the verse says in scripture in the book of Psalms, the testimony of God is trustworthy. It makes the fools wise. It raises the IQ. And we're going to, we're going to raise the partial IQ and, and then the general IQ. IQ, an idea and a question. Now, the question, we're not promising to give an answer. Some questions will have answers. Some will be there just to enjoy, to savor and relish, to ponder or wrestle with. But that's the theme of year seven, please God, of the Parsha podcast. And like this past year, we're going to start off every week with the rebroadcast, which covers the whole Parsha. I mentioned in the past that... You know, sometimes I don't remember what I said last year or the year before. Certainly not, you know, three, four years ago. I even forget what I said a couple of weeks ago or months ago. So it's helpful to revisit every week to get like a picture, a panoramic picture of the whole Parsha at large. And then, please God, on Tuesday, I'm going to do a secondary broadcast, not one that covers the whole Parsha, but one from last year, from year five. That'll be on Tuesday because you may recall last year – it was one of the great runs in in Parsha podcast history. We had an incredible year of Parsha Podcasts. Last year the theme was the ANQ Answers and Questions. That segment at the end of the show. So we're going to rebroadcast those on Tuesday. And please start with Help of the Almighty. Each Thursday, we're going to have a new episode to raise our Parsha IQ. I hope to make it a little bit shorter, a little bit more manageable this year. I do uh Want to be able to have some more time to work on other projects, especially the History Podcast. It's the neglected podcast of the suite. But I'm very excited, please God, with the help of the Almighty, to raise our Parsha IQ and and our general intelligence in the upcoming year. But today, it's still year six, and we're in Parsha's Nitzavim, and we have something really special as we near the end of year six of the Parsha podcast. It's a very topical lesson, but I think one that's also capable of really unleashing all that greatness that we have trapped within us, bottled up within us, urging us to be actualized, bursting at the seams. Let's see if we can do it. This podcast, this is one That's not to be missed. We are on the doorstep of Rosh Hashanah. And if you look at our parsha, Parshas Nitzavim, it's only 40 verses. The parsha's subject matter is really befitting this time of year. You know, we're about to get into the season of repentance. Rosh Hashanah, of course, is the beginning, first two days of the 10 days of repentance. And of course, hopefully, we had a whole month really to get ready. The month of Elul, it's a head start for this season. We hear the shofar each morning, the four daily blasts. Of course, on Hashanah itself, we will, please God, hear 100 blasts this morning in shul. I was fortunate enough to hear the shofar, just four blasts. Did you hear the shofar yet today? If you haven't, here you go, courtesy of the Parsha podcast. Wasn't that great? But we're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah on the high holidays. And we know the 10 days of repentance start with Rosh Hashanah and culminate in Yom Kippur. And you open up the parsha, and we read all about repentance. So it starts off, Moshe is gathering the nation, those who are present, those who are not present. And he makes a covenant binding the people to God and his Torah. And Moshe describes what, The consequences of that relationship are. If we disobey, if we reject God, He's going to pluck us out of the land and cast us away to a foreign land. We're going to suffer. But then we read chapter 30. And chapter 30 is all about repentance. When the events of chapter 29 happen to you, we read in chapter 30. You'll take the lesson to heart. Amidst the nations, you're scattered throughout the nations. You're going to take the lesson to heart. And verse 2, you will return to Hashem, your God. You'll listen, you'll hearken to his voice with all your heart and with all your soul. And God will return your captives and he'll have mercy upon you and he'll gather you from amongst all those nations that he scattered you in. You could be at the distant, farthest extents of the world, at the edge of the heavens. From there, God will pick you up. From there, he will take you. And he'll bring you back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll inherit it. He'll do good to you. He'll increase you. He'll circumcise your heart. And all those curses that we talked about, he'll place them upon your enemies and upon your haters. And then verse 8, we read about repentance again. And you will return. You will repent. And you will listen to the Voice of Hashem. And you'll do all of his mitzvos, And God will increase you. And he will allow you to proliferate your children, your animals, your fields. There will be goodness all around you. And you'll listen to Hashem your God. You'll guard his mitzvos, his statutes. And you will return to Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So if you read these 10 verses from chapter 30, verse 1 through 10. It mentions the nation repenting three different times. In verse 2, in verse 8, and in verse 10. In verse 2, mm-hmm. You will return, you will repent all the way back to Hashem, your God. In verse 8, You will return and listen to Hashem, your God. And again in verse 10, Ki tashuv el Hashem You will return to Hashem, your God. If you read these verses, it seems that there's some redundancy here in a couple of verses, it repeats, not once but twice, this idea that we will return to Hashem, our God. Evidently, just by reading the verses, we can tell there are different components to the repentance process that are being referenced over here. Now, once you continue in the parsha, you read verse 11. It begins another narrative. For this mitzvah that I command you today, it's not distant from you, it's not beyond you, it's not out of reach, it's not in the heavens that you must say, who will climb to the heavens to get it and bring it back to us? And it's not on the other side of the sea that you may say, who will cross over the sea to go get it for us? Rather, ki karo ve'ilach od the matter is very close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart to do it. So these Four verses are describing a mitzvah that's so close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart to do it. It's not over the sea. It's not in the heaven. It's not beyond us. It's so close. Well, which mitzvah is being referenced? Sarashi so says it's Torah study. The Ramban says it's repentance. So we have, again, 10 verses about repentance and three different kinds of repentance, apparently. And then we have four verses describing how easy, at least according to Ramban, how easy repentance is. It's so easy. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's not on the other end of the world. It's not across the sea. It's not up in the heavens. It's very close. Now, of course, this doesn't seem to match our own experience. For us, change of any variety seems nightmarishly difficult. Certainly, to change our behavior, to change our life, it seems like the most impossible of tasks. Yeah, you open up Scripture in our parsha, certainly at least the way the Ramban is reading this verse, and it presents it as being the easiest, most natural of mitzvot. It's so easy. It's in your mouth. Just chew. It's in your heart. You don't need to seek it. It's not across the heavens. It's not in the sea. The verse seems to acknowledge our perspective. If We would say, well, How hard is it to change your whole life? Well, that's like swimming across the English Channel or taking the space shuttle to outer space. That's what we would think. And the verse seems to acknowledge our perspective, but says that that, that it's wrong. It's not there. You have it wrong. It's not in the heavens. It's not across the seas. You may think that repentance is so beyond you. might as well be across the sea on Jupiter. It's so inaccessible. But Moshe tells us, the verse tells us, no, no, it's it's inside of you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouths. So we have, again, 10 verses that talk about this whole process of repentance. And it mentions repentance three times in verse 2, 8, and 10 of chapter 30. And then we have four verses that tell us that repentance is actually so easy and that does not seem to jive with our own experience, how do we reconcile the Torah's perspective of repentance with the experience of those of us that have tried to do it? We apparently have a redundancy in the first 10 verses, and we have four verses that follow that dramatically describe this mitzvah of repentance as being so easy when it seems so hard. And then the parsha continues, verse 15. And what do you think verse 15 talks about? If you had to guess, what would you guess? Well, it says like this, Ray, see, behold, I have placed before you the life and the goodness and death and evil. And the Parsha ends with this description of the two paths, the two pills. You gotta choose one. The concept of free will, free choice. Rashi tells us, God is committed to the Jewish people. I have placed before you life and good, death and bad. Those are interlinked. If you do good, you will have life. If you do bad, you will have death. And the verse proceeds to explain how so if you listen to Hashem and you accept His goodness that He wants to give you, well, then you'll have life. If you reject Hashem and you choose the unfortunate path of evil, well then, you will have death. And the parsha concludes with an exhortation, u'bacharta b'chaim, you should choose life. Now, the Rambam, when he talks about free will, free choice, he brings it in his laws of repentance. Because free will, free choice, well, that's that's the basis of repentance. Repentance is is a change. It's a choice to change your values, your priorities, your habits, your behavior, who you are as a person. You may have made a poor choice by doing a sin and distancing yourself from God and from your soul. You made a poor choice by erecting barriers between you and your creator. You made a poor choice by failing to live up to your highest ideals, to your limitless potential. You made a poor choice to prioritize the temporary, the ephemeral, and to neglect the permanent and the lasting. You made a poor choice to invest in things that are ultimately just immaterial, insignificant, and you may have underinvested in what is existentially important our mistakes are the product of our choices and we made poor choices we had free will and we exercised it poorly but by the same token we can also make good choices and we could choose to change. We can choose to return to our Creator. We can choose to improve our ways, improve our decisions, improve our values, improve our identity. To realign our values and our behavior. We can fix what we broke. We can mend what we tore asunder. And the Torah is exhorting us to choose life. B'chaim, you should choose life, restore your life, restore your eternal life. Rebuild, reconstruct your relationship with God. Cleanse yourself from all that schmutz. In this choice, the Parsha ends. Of life and goodness versus bad and death. Choose life. So we have a whole Parsha, really from beginning to end. It's all about repentance. And of course, it's no... Coincidence that we read it as we are on the doorstep of the season of repentance. And I think if we, if we study what's actually happening in our parsha, we can learn a whole new approach to repentance. And again, the questions I want to orient around are the unusual set of verses from chapter 30 verse 1 through 10, where it seems like we're repenting repeatedly. Verses 2, we repent, and 8, and 10. And then we have this very strange-sounding description of repentance, at least according to the Rabban, as being so incredibly easy. And one final ingredient to help set us up for the point that will change our lives is the age-old question. This is a question that's attributed to Rabbi Israel Salanter, but it's asked by many. And that is that the system of the ten days of repentance, starting with the two days of Rosh Hashanah, culminating, of course, in Yom Kippur, it seems like it's poorly organized. How so? Rosh Hashanah, that's the day of judgment. Every person stands before God and is judged and is placed into one of three books. The book of the righteous, the book of the wicked, and the book of the in-betweeners. It's a day where God ascends his throne of judgment and judges the entire world. Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness, of purity, where God assumes the throne, so to speak, of mercy, of forgiving, of cleansing, of purifying. So the question goes, well, if you had to organize this, you would do it, the other way around, before you're judged, before everything that you do is scrutinized, every choice that you made over the year, every word that you said, every action that you did, every thought that you had, before all that's scrutinized, let's cleanse ourselves and get ready for the judgment. So it makes more sense to have Yom Kippur first. Everyone gets cleansed. Everyone gets purified. Everyone emerges with pristine Purity. And then once we're cleansed and ready for scrutiny, then we should have Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah should be preceded by Yom Kippur. It makes a lot more sense to reverse the order. Now, of course, we don't have the authority to do that. This order is fixed in the Torah. But why did the Almighty organize it like that? Why are we first judged and only subsequently cleansed. So what's going on with repentance? Let's suggest an approach that I think presents repentance in a new light, but also can explain to us everything that's happening in our parsha and demonstrate how our parsha can serve as a manifesto for the penitent and truthfully for any person seeking any sort of positive change. You want to change, you need to know how to do it. That's what our Parsha is telling us right before the time, the critical time, where we all need to learn how to do that. In our approach, we will propose an explanation that will both explain the process of change the process of repentance. And we'll also resolve all these apparent discrepancies that we've seen. We've seen this multiple, redundant, apparently repentances of verses 2, 8, and 10. We'll demonstrate how there are different stages of repentance. We will show you that there is an easy repentance versus a hard repentance. There is, in fact, a repentance that's harder Than almost anything that you can imagine. And there is another element of this process that's so supremely easy. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. Just chew it. And we're also going to demonstrate that there's a process of repentance of Rosh Hashanah and one of Yom Kippur. And they're part of the same 10-day journey of repentance, but they are, in fact, very different. So let's begin. How does repentance, or for that matter, any sort of change, how does it get started? How does it begin? So, of course, it has to begin with a desire to change. There has to be something that triggers this process. There has to be a catalyst, an impetus to get started. It has to start with something telling you, informing you, that you need to change. I've been reading now the last couple of weeks the magisterial Robert Caro books on LBJ. And I just read today about the part where at age 46, he was already the leader of the Senate, but he suffered a massive heart attack. And he was kind of an inch away from dying. And he was a chain smoker. He used to smoke 60 cigarettes a day and drink tons of black coffee, and he was morbidly overweight. And like that, from his hospital bed, he fixed his health. He quit smoking. He trimmed off 60 pounds. He began exercising every day. He started sleeping nine hours a day. He went to drinking only decaf. In fact, there's a there's this really funny story where how he asked, can I have just one more cigarette? And he had this very emotional, almost religious experience with his last cigarette, but he changed. And there was a chance that he could have had you know, another heart attack, but he didn't. And he became, of course, president, a very consequential one. Of course, we know nothing about politics. We know nothing here at the Parsha podcast, but he was definitely – wherever you stand politically, a very consequential president, and that's probably due to his, his change. He was an inch away from dying, and that was a catalyst of change. Any change has to have, at its very beginning, a desire for change, something that triggers, some catalyst that's going to inspire a recognition that we need, we need to change. Of course, repentance also has to have a catalyst. Rabbeinu Yona, the author of the authoritative treatise on repentance, The Gates of Repentance, Shari Chuva, in section two of his book, he dedicates it to the six catalysts of repentance. If you're going to repent, there could be six different things That trigger you, that inspire you, that encourage you, that awaken you to the notion that you must repent. And the whole chapter or the whole section is dedicated to all the elements of these six catalysts. And they are, number one, when bad things happen to you and you realize God is sending you a message he wants you to improve. Number two, when you get old. And you're frail. And you are infirm. And you feel like your strength and your days are waning. You want to make sure that you can approach God with a clear conscience and a pure soul. Number three, when you hear words of Musar, words of castigation and reprimandation, when you hear from someone who awakens you to the imperative To improve your ways. Number four, when you study the words of the Torah and the prophets and the writings, and that inspires you. Number five, the ten days of repentance, that the entire days are oriented around trying to trigger this desire for repentance. And finally, once you realize that your days here are temporary and you're going to have an audience before God and what that demands of a person. Regardless of which of these catalysts are going to trigger a desire for repentance, the change must always begin with a catalyst, with an impetus. It could be an external one. It could be an internal one. But something triggers a person to say, I am yearning, I am hopeful, I am desirous, I am covetous. I want to be a different person. At that juncture, it's the hardest part This whole process. Think about it. You're taking one thing, your current self, and you are altering it. You are replacing it with a new thing, with a new entity, with your new self. What happened to your previous self? What happened to the old you? When you're changing, when you're repenting, when you are reinventing yourself. You are, in effect, taking the old person, yesterday's you, and you are getting rid of that person, you are eliminating that person, and you are going to be resurrected anew as a new person. You are, in effect, martyring your current self, and you're waking up as a new person. You're ascending Mount Moriah, you're binding yourself to the altar, just this time, You're going ahead with it. The old you is departing this world and something new is replacing it. You're shelving your old self, putting it on ice, and moving on. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 starts, And it shall be when all those things described in verse 29, when they happen to you, the blessing and the curse, you're scattered, you're punished, you're in the foreign lands, and you've been pummeled because of your sins, and you take it to heart. You're amidst all these nations, you're scattered, and you, and you take the message to heart. You have received a blow from God And that served as an impetus to wake you up. You took a tart. Verse 2, you return to Hashem your God. And you listen to his voice. And you follow everything that I command you today to do. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. So we have again the the classic run up to repentance. We have all the terrible things that happened to us in verse 29. Verse 30 starts okay. It actually hit home. You took the message to heart. The impetus, the catalyst, struck home. And in verse 2, we have the first stage of repentance. I want to read this verse again. This is the first repentance feature in our parsha, chapter 30, verse 2. You return to Hashem, your God. You repent and you hearken to His voice. Like all that I commend you today, ato uvanecha you and your children, bechal levavcha, bechal navshecha. with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your heart and with all your soul. Did those words ring a bell? with all your heart and with all your soul. Have we seen this formulation before with all your heart and with all your soul? We've seen it before. levavcha of with all your heart and with all your soul. We've seen it earlier in Devarim in the second verse of the Shema You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And what does that mean? So Rashi tells us over there in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, the first time these words appear, with all your heart, with all your soul, which means you have to love God even if it means forfeiting your life. With all your heart and with all your soul means you have to give up your life for it. And now we read about repentance and how is it describing the first verse of repentance? you should return to Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, says the great Rabbi Chaim Valashiner. These words appear elsewhere in Scripture because it's demanding the same degree of commitment. The identical verbiage that was used to describe giving up your life for God, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, even if He takes away your life for it. The first time we have the description of repentance, it's telling us that you're returning to Hashem your God. And in effect, it's the equivalent of you forfeiting your life for God. The first part of our repentance process, after we have that catalyst and we, we want to do it and we change ourselves, It's like we're giving up our lives because we're saying the person that I was yesterday, the previous self, is no longer. He's been martyred. He's not around anymore. Changing our behavior. Adopting a new way of life. Repenting. This is self-sacrifice. You're saying goodbye to your old self. You are voluntarily allowing that old person, yesterday's you, to die a martyr's death. Apparently, to change, to repent, is very, very, very hard. Beginning of this process, after you have the impetus and you say, I want to return to God, it's nightmarishly hard because in effect, you are engaging in self-martyrdom. By eliminating the person that you are and coming as a new person. This is also the repentance of Rosh Hashanah. It's a day of judgment. God scrutinizing us. What's that? That's an impetus for change if there ever was one. Rosh Hashanah is also a day of renewal of man. The first Rosh Hashanah on record is day six of creation when Adam was created. If Adam and Eve, if man and woman were created on this day, then that's the power of the day that man and woman, humanity, can be recreated on this day. This is the day when people enter it one way, as one thing, as one entity, as one person, And emerge from it as a different person, as a different entity. You're swapping in your old self for your new self. Yesterday's you was one person. Today, it's a new person. And this is how we start our process. Verse 2. It's the hardest part. The hardest part of the repentance after you have the will and you have the impetus it starts off with something as difficult as martyrdom. It's not easy at all. But then we read something very interesting. Verses 3 through 7. Once that stage is done, things radically improve. God will return your captives, read in verse 3. God will have mercy on you. God will gather you from all those nations. You could be the furthest away. God will bring you back. He'll bring you back to the land. That land that you so dearly coveted, He's going to give it back to you. You'll inherit it. Ve'hetivcha, He will do good to you. Ve'hirbacha, and He will increase you more than your forefathers. You took one step to God. God is going to respond in kind and take a step towards you. And what does it look like when God takes a step to you? He will do good for you. He will increase you. He will restore your captives. He'll gather you in. He'll circumcise your heart. He will take all those curses and put them on your enemies. He will vanquish your haters and your enemies. Stage one of repentance was the existentially difficult one. But right afterwards, we begin to receive the overwhelming divine goodness. You turn to me, and I will turn to you. Anila Dodi, I am to my beloved. I take a step towards him. Vidodi Lee. And my beloved takes a step to me. After I return, it's it's difficult. It's, it's like giving up your life. But once I do that, I get all kinds of benefits. My captives come back. I'll have mercy. The ingathering of the exile, God will do good to me. He'll increase me. My heart will be circumcised. And all that punishment, well, that will be foisted upon our haters and enemies. The ball is rolling. And of course, the beginning of this process was so, so, so hard. Now, now it's awesome. What happens next? It was very difficult. It was like giving up our whole lives. But now it's fantastic. God took a step towards me. What does that inspire me to do? What is that sort of impetus? I want more of that. So I decide, we decide, y'all decide, everyone decides to take another step to God, to upgrade our relationship, to deepen our relationship, to tr- return even closer, to repent even more. And that's verse 8. V'at tashuv, you'll return. I returned to writing verse 2. Yes, that was the first stage. But look what happened since then. Now you want to return even more. You want more of that, right? V'asizikom You'll do all of his mitzvos. We're enthralled with this relationship. We want even more of it. Where do I sign? We returned a bit to God and he returned a bit to us. And now that inspires us to return even more to him. This process is a self-reinforcing cycle. A continuous continuum. Of course, it started off being so hard, but now we're in love. And with every step that we take, we're enjoying it even more. It gets better and better. Each successive step unlocks more blessing, which makes us want even more, which engenders more divine closeness, and that makes us want even more, and we get more, and so on. There is a virtuous cycle of closeness and goodness. More closeness begets more goodness, begets a desire for more closeness, which gets more goodness, and so on. No longer is it hard, we want it even more. And what happens next? Verse 9. God will make you abundant in all your handiwork, your children, your progeny, your animals, your produce. Everything will be improved. God will delight over you like he delighted over your forefathers. A further escalation of the love and goodness that God is going to bestow upon us, which, of course, you guessed it, leads us to verse 10 and a third round of repentance. This is the framework of change. It starts off with something so difficult, it might as well be martyrdom. But that's going to trigger a pleasure, an experience, an upgrade of our life. That's going to make us want even more. And thus, in each successive step, it gets easier and easier and more pleasurable and more enjoyable, which inspires us to do it even more, until eventually, it becomes so easy and so pleasurable. You know, what initially started off as being so distant, so unreachable, it's on the moon, it's in Jupiter, it's across the sea, it's beyond our reach. Eventually, it's in our hearts And their mouths. At that stage, after several successive rounds of this virtuous cycle, repentance is astonishingly, exceedingly, inordinately easy. It's in our mouth. It's in our heart. Indeed, it started off. It was monstrously hard. But now, it's supremely easy. This is how repentance works. This is the penitence manifesto. But the truth is, this is a format for all change. You recall the iconic and unforgettable Rashi comment to chapter 19, verse 5 of Exodus. Exodus. The Ten Commandments, the revelation at Sinai is chapter 20 of Exodus. So this is right before the Sinai revelation and the accepting of the Torah. Is there anything more intense of a change than accepting the Torah and permanently binding yourself and your descendants to follow a very rigid, inflexible, and comprehensive corpus of Torah? Every part of your life is now governed by God? Think about what kind of change that is. And the Jewish people have to sign a dotted line. They have to sign the line which is dotted. What does that demand? And Rashi tells us that Moshe presents this bargain to the Jews. He says, okay, do you want it? And Rashi explains what Moshe was telling them was that if they accept it, if they accept the terms, it's going to be very, very hard for them. But once they do that initial accepting, it becomes pleasurable from then on. The acceptance, the initial decision to change, not just the impetus, the awakening to change, to actually return, to to change your identity. I'm a different person now. That's hard. That's martyrdom. But thenceforth, it is pleasure. And of course, with each successive cycle, it's still hard, but it's the kind of hard that you want, you desire, you know what it it entails for you. It starts off. It's difficult. But once you make that choice, now you're unlocking the levels of pleasure. So, we have a new approach to repentance. It's not, you know, this one isolated, siloed off, discreet event. Oh, you sinned. Repent. Move on. Now you are a penitent. You have changed. You have repented. You have absolved yourself from that sin. You have expiated yourself. It's not how it works. Repentance is mentioned numerous times in a parsha. There are multiple sequential stages in the bonding of man, mankind, and his, their creator. It's a transformation of this relationship. The word in Hebrew, repentance, tshuva, teshuva, means to return, to come back. We were close to God. Unfortunately, we became distant. Barriers separate us now from our Creator. There's distance between us and our Creator. But something, it could be a variety of things, something is going to trigger an awakening to change. And one of those triggers... It's in a couple of days, Rosh Hashanah. Done right, it starts off with a decision to change. A decision to say I'm a different person. A decision on Rosh Hashanah to say the person who is going to be recreated today is a different person than the person who walked in the door when the festival began. Just like Adam was created on this day, anyone who wants can be recreated on this day. And if you do that properly, it's painful. It's painful because you are, in effect, bidding adieu, saying adios, saying shalom to your old self. But the nice thing about it is that it's going to set into motion a series of events that are going to be wonderful and are going to lead to an escalation an advancement of this process of closeness. Repentance, initially, is going to beget a commensurate response from God. I want closeness. God says, oh, I want closeness too. The Almighty loves us like a parent, but we're estranged from our parent. And he wants closeness more than we can ever fathom. And if we take a step, he will take a step. And what does it look like when God takes a step in your direction? All kinds of wonderful goodies come your way. More blessing, more prosperity, more goodness, more closeness, more of an enriched life. More of a meaningful life. More of, of a value and, and existential importance to who I am as a person. And that's something which is deeply satisfying and it's going to create a craving, a thirst, an appetite for more repentance and more closeness, which is going to unlock, again, another commensurate pivot by God in our direction, which will result in more goodness, more closeness, more blessing, more prosperity, which is going to trigger more repentance and so on until eventually... Repentance is just easy. When you're far away from God, when you're on a bad trajectory, closeness to God, that idea is just, it's the most difficult thing in the world. It might as well be on the other side of the world, across the seas, up in the heavens. You don't feel like you could do it. And indeed, the first step is the most difficult step, and it's akin to martyrdom. It's very hard. It's self-sacrifice. It's painful. But that is going to kickstart a process that gets easier and easier. And after these layers of closeness, perhaps if we're doing it right, by the time your kipper comes around, it's in our heart, it's in our mouth. Our parsha is the penitent manifesto. One flash of inspiration. One catalyst that we take to heart. Triggers a firm commitment. A decision that can begin a virtuous cycle of self-reinforcing stages. We start off, it's very hard. It's painful even. It's so intense that this decision might mirror martyrdom. But you've moved, you moved the needle. That flywheel has inched forward. And God says, okay, well, you're interested. Guess what? I'm interested as well. You take a step towards him. He takes a step towards you. And now you're emboldened and you begin to believe in yourself, and you see some momentum, and that inspires you to take the next step, and so on. Rosh Hashanah is the time to take that first firm step to say, I want to acknowledge the divine. I want to acknowledge my own enormous, untapped potential. And just like Adam was created on this day, I too can be recreated in this day as a new different person saying goodbye to who I was yesterday? And that is difficult, but that is when I take my first step to God. If you try to start with Yom Kippur, it doesn't work like that. Yom Kippur is a day of love. Yom Kippur is a day where God has all the bounties of closeness, open. To earn that, to be worthy of that, you have to start off with Rosh Hashanah. But this day is enormously consequential. The Talmud tells us, the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, this is an important time we have to remember every single Rosh Hashanah. Talmud tells us, a person is only judged as per the behavior of that time. And it quotes the verse that we not coincidentally read on Rosh Hashanah. The verse is after Ishmael was banished and he was sick and dying. This is Genesis chapter 21. The Almighty showed Hagar a fountain of water, a wellspring of water to save Ishmael. And the Talmud tells us why, because Ishmael was being judged at that time. And even though in the future, he's going to become a real rascal. And his descendants are going to cause a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and death to the Jews. Nevertheless, at that time, he was righteous. And therefore, we don't look into the future. Rashi, in his comment, tells us, that the angels were lobbying God to allow Ishmael to die. His descendants, the angels, argued, they're going to cause the Jewish people to die of thirst. And now he's dying of thirst? Why would you extend life to him? And God responded, well, that's the future. What about now? What about the present? Is he righteous or is he wicked? The angel said he's righteous. Okay. I am not judging him based upon the future, only the way he is right now. Ishmael was, of course, justly banished from his father's home. But God heard his prayers and God sent him the water to save him. Because God judges people the way they are right now, not based upon the future. Now, the Talmud elsewhere, this is the Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b. The Talmud elsewhere, this is in the Jerusalem Talmud, in the book of Rosh Hashanah. It says something even more astonishing. It quotes a different verse, not the verse about Ishmael, but a verse in Job, chapter 8, verse 6. Emzach viyashar ata if you are clean, if you are righteous, if you are refined and Yashar are upright, now, that's how you will be judged. Explains the Talmud. A person is only judged the way they are right now. Ishmael taught us that you're not judged based upon how you'll be in the future. This verse in Job teaches us that you're not judged the way you were in the past either. It doesn't say, if you were righteous and upright in the past. It says if you're righteous and just now, when you're being judged. As just revealed to us that a person is judged on Rosh Hashanah the way they are on Rosh Hashanah, not the way they were before Rosh Hashanah, and not the way that they will be after Rosh Hashanah, They're judged the way they are right now. And the reason is something we've already mentioned. Rosh Hashanah is the day of the creation of man. And every year when we reach that juncture, that station and time in the year, man is created anew. And a person gets to choose how they want to be created. How they want to be recreated. And that person, that new created person, is the one that's judged. So we're not going to judge him the way they are yesterday because it's a new person. Meaning, if a person is righteous on Rosh Hashanah, in effect, they are telling God, this is who I am, this is the new me, and you can't judge the way I was yesterday. That's a different person. Of course, a person could also choose to not be recreated on Rosh Hashanah. To be recreated the exact same way they were in the past. Such a person is judged the way they are right now, which is the same as they were in the past. But someone who is brave enough to recreate themselves anew, to come as a penitent, to seek improvement, to take that catalyst and impetus to heart, and who wants to be refined and straight, who wants to be righteous, That's a person who is judged the way they are today, the way they are recreated on Rosh Hashanah. Is it easy? No. It's murderously hard. It's like martyrdom. All beginnings are hard. Certainly, the new beginning of our new self, we have to part ways with who we have been hitherto. It's very hard. But afterwards, the pleasure begins Feels really good to be in the good graces of our divine father. And that's going to inspire us to do a successive second round of repentance. And as we get closer and closer to the Almighty and to our idealized self, eventually the self reinvention is so, so, so close. It's in our heart and it's in. Our mouths. Okay, let's do the sweet exquisite insight, the final exquisite insight of the year 5782. This comes courtesy of one of the great commentators on the Torah, Rabbi Nabuchaya. I remember seeing this comment last year and being so bamboozled by it and not knowing what to do with it, and filing it away in my notes, it's perfect for an exquisite insight. It's an insight. Listen, I don't feel obligated to explain it. It's quite baffling. But all I promise is to give you an exquisite insight. And that's all I need to deliver. So here we go. Our parsha, the Ramban, others tell us, there are a lot of messianic overtones or undertones in our parsha. For example, God will circumcise your heart. That's a reference to the messianic age. In fact, the Talmud, even in the book of Sukkot, many of the commentaries invoke it. In the future, in messianic times, the Almighty will take the and slaughter it, and kind of remove that proverbial foreskin but in middle of this section we read a verse that god will take all the curses and all the punishment and he will place it upon our enemies and our haters now there's an amazing comment by rabina bahaya it's a very long piece i'm going to give you just the highlights you want to read the whole thing it's actually very interesting What does it mean that God will take the punishments, the curses, the maledictions, and place it upon our enemies and our haters? So he tells us, our enemies, that's a reference to Ishmael. Our haters, that is a reference to Esau. Abraham had a pretty big family. Of course, the Abrahamic Line goes through Isaac, not Ishmael. And even within Isaac, it's the twin Jacob, not the twin Esau. Our enemies were told that's Ishmael. Our haters, that is Edom, that is Esau. And Rabbeinah Bechiah tells us these are the two nations, really empires, that we are. Subjugated to. And we are scattered amongst. Of course, we know asav that's a reference to the Christians. And they are our haters, according to Rebbeinah And Ishmael, that's the Muslims. And they're not our haters, they are our enemies. Which is worse to be a hater or an enemy. So he tells us that an enemy is worse than a hater, because a hater at least has some compassion. They'll do bad things to you, but they'll have some compassion. An enemy has total, eternal enmity in their heart, and that is Ishmael. Of our two nations and empires that we're going to be subjected to, Ishmael will be harder on us than Asaf. That's what Rabina Bahaya says. And then he he brings a Talmud. A Talmud is an allegorical Talmud. And he explains it to refer to a future reunification and coalescing of these cousins. And he finds in the allegories, number one, that these haters and enemies, Ishmaelites, And a Savian people, they're going to come sit in our shade. They're going to coalesce with us. And they're going to give us animals to make sacrifices. And they're going to convert. And they will fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin. And they will be circumcised. Because they will convert and join us in one covenant. In the future, these cousins are going to reunite with us and convert and become into one nation. And then he adds that Israel, us, we're going to be judged and we're going to be punished for the fact that we delayed their conversion because we didn't repent, that's why they didn't convert, and we're going to be punished for us tarrying, for us dilly-dallying and not repenting, which delayed their conversion. Everything I told you is found in Rabbeinu Bahaya, one of the medieval commentators on the Torah. From this verse, chapter 30, verse 7, in our Parsha. It's an insight. To me, it's a wild, wild, wild insight. Ishmael will don't fill in. Esav will be circumcised. They're going to convert and become one nation with us in some Messianic time. And we're going to be punished because we delayed in repenting, which delayed their conversion. I have no no comment on this comment. It's just an insight that I saw that I'm throwing out into the Parsha podcast. What to do with it, how to explain it, what's the rationale behind it, what's the basis and the words of our sages for it, I don't know. Don't ask me questions about this, because my only answer is, I don't know. But do send me your thoughts to com. And as we sign off here for the Parsha podcast from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, I want to wish you and your family and all your loved ones and your community, of course, the entire Jewish people. I want to wish everyone a shana tova umetuka, a good year, a sweet year. May you be inscribed in the book of life. May you be sealed in the book of life. May this upcoming year be one of just great health and great prosperity and great happiness and great joy and delight and goodness and only good tidings we hear from each other and from the rest of our brethren. May it be a year of great advancement, of great growth, and development. May we all flourish. May there be peace and stability and goodness in our lives. May we be recipients of divine blessings. May we gather together every week here to study Torah, to study the Parsha. May it be an incredible, wonderful year for all of us, together with the rest of our brethren. I Thank you for listening. Have an incredible rest of your day. A fantastic and splendid rest of your week. A superb and uplifting and meaningful last final Shabbos of the year. A meaningful and uplifting Rosh Hashanah upcoming. May it be a Rosh Hashanah where we actually consider the fact that we can Change. Please God, we'll get together again next year after Rosh Hashanah for Parshas Vayelech. May we all have a great year. Shana Tova Umetuka.